Hello everybody and welcome back to the JDA Football Podcast slash Saturday Sports and Sounds. Upcoming on this show, England hit four past Ukraine in Rome, Italy beat Spain on penalties in an enthralling semi-final, England beat Denmark to go into their first international major tournament final since 1966 and we know what happened there. All of that and much more to come on this episode and show. We'll move on to the first game that we didn't speak about last week because it was literally the day after our uh, show, or it was on the same day, but later at the eight o'clock kickoff. England beat Ukraine 4-0, England's biggest ever win at European Championships. Harry Kane getting a brace, Maguire and Jordan Henderson got his first ever goal for England as well. Last time England scored four goals in a major tournament knockout game was when, Alex? Can you remember? Um, I don't know. Was it 98? 1966. Oh. <laughs> Apparently, oh, when we beat Germany 4-2 and won the World Cup, like I said oh. in the intro. Um, it was a stress-free performance, really, wasn't it, Alex? Yeah, it definitely helped that we scored pretty early through Kane, a, a very good ball from Sterling. And then from, from there on, it was just a very dominant, uh, dominant performance and a very... Um, a, a very professional performance. Um I was a bit shaky during the, the the end of the first half. I think um, Ukraine started to get in it. I think Juranchuk was um, not bullying Kyle Walker, but he, he could have done a bit uh, better Walker at some points. Um, but then uh, Harry Maguire scoring that goal early in the second half really helped us, and then it calmed down a bit. And then Harry Kane, obviously, with his third. And then um, Jordan Henderson, uh, spectacularly, with his first England goal with the header. To make it four 0 and that brought us to the to the semi finals. We'll just highlight Kane now. He's hit the ground running, sort of scoring two goals. Now he's on four in this tournament, I believe, and he's one goal off Gary Lineker to match his record of most goals in a World Cup and a Euros for England combined. However, what is your assessment of the Spurs man this Euros so far? I don't know. He's he's definitely sat deeper than he than he normally does. I think he might want to be more a part of the team rather than just being the, the target man that you cross into. I think that's why he's tried to go deeper for the play. Um, and sometimes it hasn't really worked. I think definitely against Ukraine, he, he changed it up a bit and decided to just stay as that target man. And it's done him very, very well. And I think as well against Denmark, which we probably going to come to, although he did come deep quite a few times, he didn't do it as much. And I think that really helped us going forward. Yeah, as a collective performance, I was talking to somebody earlier this week and they said that they were with watching the game against Ukraine with uh, somebody who was watched the 1966 final. And he said, I've watched all of the England games throughout the years and we've never, this England team, as that performance against Ukraine, we've never had that ever where we've dominated a game really comfortably in a major tournament. This is not a friendly. Um, and we've looked comfortable on the ball and we we look like we're going to score uh, the majority of the time and that's what happened in the 4-0. But for someone to say that since watching the 1966 World Cup, it's pretty mental, isn't it? How we've come all this way and this is the best team that we've ever had. And even said, we weren't even great for 90-odd minutes that was in that game because in extra time, of course, Nobby Styles, Jeff Hurst, sorry. Um, he, the, them two both scored those goals, so England won. But he said, apart from those 90 minutes, we didn't play well apart from the last dynamics of the game. So it's a bit weird to see this is the best England squad that we've really ever had, isn't it? Yeah, it's weird because they were talking about it a lot. They don't really play like England. Like 
Um, England are normally a team like they'll dominate play, but they'll win by one or two goals. They always try and make it hard for themselves. But this set of players don't really have the same mentality that they they did have probably before Southgate was in charge. I know Roy Hodgson couldn't really get them going. We had the awful tournament where we lost to Iceland, and then um, of course Gareth Southgate came in and he's brought us to two semi-finals and now final. So he's he's really hit the ground running. Um, but yeah, it's just a really young squad. They don't really bear the weight of any um, past failures. So yeah, it's uh, very good for the fleet, for the future as well. Luke Shaw was magnificent again. Two assists in this game. Sancho's first ever start in a major tournament for England, and he took his chance for sure, didn't he? Yeah, definitely. Uh, what do you reckon Southgate said to Jack Grealish after the game when he whispered in his ear? Because there was many things going around saying, "Oh, you might play in the final. We'll try and get you on next game." Yeah. What do you think? What do you think it was? I hope it was. I'll save you for the final because uh, if it wasn't, I think we're a bit screwed. I know he took him off. Um, did he take him off for extra time or halfway through it in the Denmark game? So yeah. I don't know whether he just like felt a niggle or something. Or um, but I hope he's he's saving him for the final. But then again, I don't really know who'd start for because Sterling played well, Sancho played well, and so did Mount at the end of the day. So um, yeah, we just have to wait and see. I just wanted to also look at the maturity of this group of England, the players in this squad, because Rio Ferdinand said it. The maturity is absolutely brilliant. I've never seen anybody as calm and collected of an England side compared to previous teams as this because everyone says, oh, it's coming home, but they're just saying take it game by game like they do when they're in the teams in the Premier League and Bundesliga. Why do you think they're so mature? And the oldest players, I think it's 27, 28. It's really magnificent how this team's so young and they've still got the maturity of players who were in their 30s say for instance yeah I think it's just a, a different mindset seeing as how like past England teams they've kind of like Roy Hodgson as the manager hasn't really got the same passion as Southgate had I think Southgate's the main pushing point because he's been there he's uh, missed the the penalty that took England out of the Euros when everyone thought we could we could finally do it um, so he has the passion for the game unlike other any other manager we've really had um, so I think the players have really took it on board and they've done really well taking it on board uh, and well, they're, they're playing some of the best football of their lives so um, yeah Is it coming home Alex? It might be So we'll move on to the semi-final game England 2 Denmark 1 in extra time the goals Damsgaard with sublime free kick Nine minutes later, England score through Simon Kerr's goal. And in extra time, in the 104th minute, Captain Kane misses his penalty, but the rebound rustled into the net with Kane and especially Phil Foden's face reactions showing how key that goal was. But England did concede their first goal of the tournament, like I said before, through Sampdoria midfielder Damsgaard. Uh, they showed great character to bounce back after waves and waves of attacks, didn't they? With the Danes eventually plummeted through the own goal and, and assisted of Arsenal's Saka. Uh, but focusing on the great character shown it to take only nine minutes to equalise, something special, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think um, many other teams in this tournament, I know Germany and stuff, they took ages to, to get back against that um, the Hungary side who took the lead early and all the other good teams that you could say probably be in our position right now. Um, but as I said, like they've just got a different mindset to, to any other England team or any other real um, team in this tournament. Maybe Italy, you could 
put in the same category. But yeah, the the amount of pressure they must have been under to go and just score after nine minutes is amazing. And um, I mean, I I can't remember, did, did Kane play the through ball to Saka, and then yeah, I think yeah, I think he did. And it's a great ball, and then Saka showed his composure, and then Sterling just had to be there to. Uh, well, if Kerr didn't touch it, he would have put it in. So, yeah, so can you say it's a great goal? But, um, well, it great was a build up play. Yeah, yeah, brilliant build up play. Um, now, we'll talk about the soft penalty, so so called, given on Sterling. But we've seen decisions all year like this. So, why stop now, Alex? I don't know. Um, personally, I think it was a pen. I think some people might think I'm a bit biased, seeing as I, I am an England fan. But, um, <laughs> He has ultimately touched him, and although probably it might not have been enough to make him fall over, I think it was still a penalty. There was still contact in the box. I think if he had gone over um, with a bit of contact anywhere else on the pitch, then it would have been a foul. So I don't know why it wouldn't be uh, at this point. And it was it was no softer a penalty than um, that Kane didn't get earlier in the game. So I think we were a bit unlucky with that one. So... We just, uh, I think we just got our, our just reward. Yeah, I, I thought personally the one that you said there with Kane, um, that was in the box. I thought that was more of a penalty than this one. Yeah, I think definitely more contact. Yeah, no way he got really got the ball. He just went through him, didn't he? Um, yeah. but there was a situation with the laser. One of the fans in the stadiums flashed a laser at uh, Kasper Schmeichel when the penalty is about to be taken. Now, everyone was saying, "Oh, it, this is that's why it put him off." But at the end of the day, he went the right way, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he saved the penalty, so it can't have put him off that much. Um, but just because it doesn't put him off, I don't think um, it's definitely not the right thing to do. And yeah. I think they did get they get fined, didn't they? Uh, England at the end. Yeah, yeah, they did. By UEFA. Um, but then again, like he didn't really notice it. If he did notice it, then um, he would have took the penalty again. But um, yeah didn't really affect him and he did save the penalty but we were just unlucky that it, it Kane did get the rebound when he went to go and like save the penalty he saved it but he sort of expected to catch it in a way didn't he when Schmeichel went down but because he wanted to catch it and he didn't catch it in the end it smothered really then Kane smashed it in do you reckon he, he wanted to just take it into his body really and not palm it out yeah, definitely. I think it, at the end of the day, it probably wasn't the right decision. He probably should have just pushed it away in a different direction. But because he did try and catch it um, while he, while he was on the floor, I don't think that was the right decision. And he ended up uh, just squirming it out of his hands and Kane just got the rebound. Now, with that soft penalty, I think there's sort of an element of justice in a way for after what's happened to us with Maradona in 86, 2009, Frank Lampard's goal clearly over the line but wasn't given and all the penalty shootouts that we've had to go through over the years, especially the Germany ones as well. Uh, But we've deserved a bit of luck, haven't we, Alex, with this penalty? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of luck, but we've, we've never really had luck in any European competition at all. So, uh, yeah, we definitely deserve some. The the fans' uh, capacity was up, sorry. 60,000, did it make a much of a difference, could you tell? Or was it just still a brilliant atmosphere either way, 25,000 or 60? I mean, it was, it was still a brilliant atmosphere, but I can't help but think the game against Germany where I think they had about half capacity rather than about three quarters. I think it was... Um, not much better but it was a, a better atmosphere just because like it's England in the knockout stages there's less people but they were making as much noise as as much more people could make so 
Um, it was a still great, uh, was still a great atmosphere, but I think it would have been better with less people. But you never know. I'm going to finish on with this main man. As much as we all moan about Gareth Southgate, his tactics and players that he picks, everyone has a go. He's got to be up there with one of the best England managers, if not the best England has ever had. Three semi-finals in four years with a World Cup, Nations League and now a Euros. The first ever England manager to lead us to a World Cup and Euro semi-finals. And now he's going to be the first ever England manager to lead us into a European Championship final. Should we put some more respect on Gareth Southgate's name now, really? Yeah, 100%. We'll move on to the other semi-final game. It was Italy versus Spain. Ended up one all in the end. Morata getting an equaliser in the 80th minute with Federico Chiesa getting Italy's first goal in the game. It went to pens. Jorginho won it 5-4 on penalty with Alvaro Morata missing. Alex, what was your first thoughts on the game? Because it was an incredible game to watch. One of the best games of the Oro so far. Yeah, it was a, a very, very good game. Two really classy teams when they had the ball. Um, but I do think Spain were the better team on the day. They created more chances uh, Italy were just very resilient in defence and they had a few counter-attacking opportunities and ultimately that's how they got the goal through Chiesa, a very good finish. Um, but I think Spain should have been one or two up by that point, so they'll feel very hard done by there. And then obviously Alvaro Morata coming on and getting the equaliser with a, a bit of a weird celebration going up to the camera. Um, but yeah, took it to extra time. Again, Spain had more chances, they could have won it and then uh, went to the penalty shootout. Yeah, sort of Steven Gerrard-esque, that celebration. But the penalties, they've, they've, apart from two penalty shootouts, I would say, they've actually been quite good penalties So in this Euros, I think. This one was very good. I feel like the players are a lot more calmer than they were in other tournaments like we've seen with Thiago and Jorginho, especially in that penalty shootout. I don't know about you. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think there's some, some of them, I think, was it the... Switzerland one that, that wasn't brilliant. I think it was Switzerland yeah. Spain won it. Um, but then in this one, as you say, it was some very good penalties and some very good goalkeeping as well. I think in some of the tournaments, the goalkeeping hasn't been that good for penalties. But um, yeah, a lot of the players showed um, some great class. As much as Spain's goalkeeper Unai Simon's been slated this uh, Euros, especially for the goal that he conceded against Croatia, he has been very good on the penalties. On that on that line, he was very good, making sure which way he wanted them to go rather than them picking a certain spot in a way. Yeah, definitely. I think I thought he was going to gain a lot of confidence from um, saving Locatelli's penalty, like first penalty. So, um, but it didn't really really go his way. Um, I think he should lay off um, playing with his feet. He's not very good at that. But I think when it comes to penalties, he's uh, one of the best. Now we're going to preview the Euro 2020 final that is Italy versus England at Wembley, 8 o'clock on Sunday. England's first major final, 55 years it's been. The referee will be Bjorn Kaifer, who is Dutch. Apparently he gives out quite a lot of yellow cards. But Alex, how good are Italy for all the listeners who don't know? They're a bit of a mixed bag. I know they've won every game that they have had so far. So realistically, you might say they were the favourites. Um, but they've really, against big teams, you could probably say England are in that category. Um, they've really been like the, not the worst team, but they've kind of defended and tried to hit everyone on the counter-attack. And that's one thing that they're very, very good at. If they play the right wingers and then uh, Immobile or Bellotti, whoever's up front, plays the right passes going forward, then they can be very effective. But um, 
against Spain, they struggled. And I think Spain are one of the teams that you could point out have had a very, very good defence um, this tournament. I think England also come in that category as well. And if they can, if, if England can really like be solid in defence and stop the counter-attacks, then I think they'll do all right. I think the difference between us and a lot of other teams is we, if we play a back three, which I'll come on to and ask you in a minute, if we play a back three, if, like you said, their counter-attack's deadly with the Mobley, Insignia and Chiesa. Difference is, we've got Kyle Walker, who's one of the fastest defenders on planet Earth, I'm pretty sure. So I don't think we've got a lot to worry about, do you? Especially if it's Chiesa against Walker. No, definitely not. And I think if you, if we do play five at the back, if we play like a Reese James at, at wing back, then we'll be able to double up on some uh, wingers as well. So I think, although some people have been slandering Kyle Walker because he's not the best going forward defensively, he's probably been one of the best players for us this tournament. Yeah, very cool, calm and collected Kyle Walker has been. But Italy haven't been beat in two years. I think it's 32 games unbeaten. So how can we beat Italy? Because as shown in the semi-final against Spain, like I said before, Spain were probably the, the team that should have won on the night. They weren't the better team, but they did go through on penalties, as we've said before. So how should England approach the game? Should we be the ones sitting back or should we force them to sit back and dominate the game like Spain did? I think if we can like play some passes that we played uh, going forward in other games in the tournament, I think we should be all right because the one thing I think we might struggle um, for this match is obviously going forward. I think Italy as well have been very, very good defensively, very compact. And against some of uh, the teams that do defend a lot against us, we can struggle to score. I think the Scotland game was a good uh, example of that. But as long as we can maintain being good at the back, I think we could take it to extra time and maybe they'll start to expand a bit more and we'll be able to open gaps. So, yeah, I think um, we shouldn't sit back, but we should definitely be a bit more defensive and make them go forward a bit so we can find those gaps. Of course, one of the areas that will be highlighted will be that right wing position that's not really nailed on so far. We're in the final, it's not been nailed on. It's magnificent to see. But who would you be picking, Saka or Sancho? Because there's two elements to this. You have Sancho... Uh, on the back line of the defence of Italy so he can make runs in behind because, as we know, Cialini and Panucci aren't the quickest running back towards their goal anyway. So do we play that with Sancho? But there then leaves a risk, if not backtracking, which Bakayo Saka can do and we've seen brilliant performances from him in the past. But he has also been slated for going forwards and he's not been given as many options. So who would you pick and why? I think it really depends depends on the formation if we play three at the back and then wing backs with like maybe Reese James or Kieran Trippier at wing back I'd be tempted to put Phil Foden in there because I think when he came on uh, in the last match I think he opened Denmark quite a bit and I think that would be very effective against uh, Italy uh, but if we end up playing four at the back I think definitely Bakayo Saka uh, he created the go- the first goal against Denmark so I think he'd be good as you said for, for tracking back and I think he'd be the most effective option. We spoke about formations just a little bit ago, but will we revert to a back three against the Azuri or will we play a 4-2-3-1? Or another formation? Because we've seen Southgate make changes to the formation in-game. So what, what what's your thinking of the matter? I think you'll go to three at the back, honestly. Uh, I think 
the teams we played, I think um, Ukraine were a very counter-attacking team and I think it didn't really work playing four at the back at times. We were getting caught out. So hopefully Southgate's seen that and, and thought maybe we should play three at the back. So you would go with three at the back just as your final option? Yes. Yes. I think it's a more effective way of controlling that front three. Who would you be? Who would be in your back three? The same against Germany? Yeah, I think you have to pick Walker as the wide one. I think he's um, very controlled. And then Maguire in the middle and Stones are on the left. We have seen Maguire play on the left as well, haven't we, with him bringing the yeah. ball forward. So very adaptable, that back three, which is good to see. But it all comes down to the score prediction. Is it coming home, Alex? And what will the score prediction be? I think it is. I'm going to go 1 0 England. I'm going to go. It's coming home. I'm going 1 0 England. I said it from the start. England are going to win the Euros. So we're going to win. It's going to be 1 0. So it is the last week of the Euros. It finishes this Sunday, as we've highlighted before, the final. All the key games go into that. But we're going to have a quick review of the Euros, Alex, as the last segment of the show. What's been your general focus over this Euros, really? Has it been a good one, would you say? It's been quite an enthralling one, I think. But what do you think? I mean, there's there's been a lot of goals. Uh, and there's been a, a sometimes a bit shaky defending. I think definitely the knockout stages, we, uh, we started to see some of those games open up. Um, I mean, France versus Switzerland and Croatia versus Spain, both on the same day, was, I think, probably the maddest day of the tournament. Um, and, yeah, I think a lot of teams have showed their quality. A lot of teams have um, just come out of nowhere, really. Denmark, obviously, Switzerland got to the, the quarters. Uh, and then Ukraine as well have never been that far, so uh, it was good from them. I mean, it's it's incredible to think that we've managed to hold this tournament, let alone... What do you think about it taking place over across all the different cities that we've never seen a tournament like this before because it's the 60th anniversary? It's a bit of a weird one because normally, like, for you get the real, like, vibe of, you know, like Russia or yeah. when it's playing Brazil or when it's playing in Russia, you kind of feel like it's a Brazilian tournament, it's a Russian tournament, so we should feel a certain way like it's not really been like that. Um, I, I don't know whether I've liked it or not because obviously. Most of our games have been at Wembley anyway. And I think when we have played at Wembley, it's been such a great experience. Um, but I think that game against Ukraine and stuff like that going to Rome was definitely a, a very good game as well. So um, I'm not sure whether I like it or not, but obviously it probably would have been nice just having a, a, a game in the Euros at England. Yeah, even like the little gems that we didn't know, Copenhagen, we didn't know that was going to be a, like sort of a mm. battleground to go to. We didn't go there, luckily enough, but other teams did, like Belgium, came through, but it was very tough. And you've got all the other stadiums like Baku. I think that was a bit of an overstretch sort of, especially for the Wales squad, it didn't really help them. I suppose the next, if it's the 100th year anniversary, then I suppose they could take it into a factor. Yeah, to do maybe something like that, but highlight it in all the major cities because of COVID, obviously, you've not been allowed to. But like I said it a couple of weeks ago, you've got your Frances, you've got your... Um, it's Well, there's some in Italy, actually. Um, there's Belgium, even there, they're starting to get quite big with the golden generation. So then you've got their stadiums over there with Anderlecht and Genk. Lots of other places as well. So I think... Rather than going over to the Middle Eastern side where football's not so rich for the 100th anniversary, maybe go to the rich and astound, really, countries. I don't know about you. 
Yeah, definitely. I think the the travel didn't really do anyone any favors as well. I know the Russian tournament, everyone was moaning about that way. You have to go like to the other end of Russia, but now they're having to travel all, all over Europe to play games that are like three days apart. And I think that would have been fixed if we'd just played it in England. So, yeah, and hats off to the players as well because they've had to play through a very small schedule this year with the Champions League, especially. Uh, being crammed in every single week it really seemed so credit to them because they've had to go over as well like you said with the Wales players and tobacco so travel even more for them and to play more games and a shorter time as well it's just brilliant I mean the England levels were brilliant against all the teams that have played and even still in an extra time it just shows how much they're trained and how good they are compared to other players in the past because of everything with the nutrition and fitness it really just shows how long, how far football has come. Yeah, definitely. I think the um, the fans being there as well, from having a whole season without fans to just getting to this massive tournament where we're now allowed sixty thousand fans in the stadium, it's just been it's just been electric at some points. I suppose one thing as well, like you said it there, the fans have been able to go and see their national team in their own country, which many people can't really say like. Uh, well, I was going to say Azerbaijan, but they didn't even qualify for Baku. Um, but Denmark. yeah, yes, yeah, could say Denmark. I mean, the Italians, they, they've missed it. They have had a really bad hit to the pandemic and COVID. So for them to go and see their national team, it's sort of made the world better, really, hasn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah, after like, I don't know, is it like a year and a half now that we've not been able to watch any sport live from from the stadiums and everything. It's just raw passion that's coming out right now. And it's, yeah, definitely developed the tournament a lot. So we'll move on to some transfer news now. And it's been a very, very busy week, hasn't it, Alex? Yeah, very. Um, I think there's a, about a month to go in the transfer window. So I think they'll start piling up around about now. Yeah. Um, now, the big one that hit the headlines this week, Sergio Ramos has announced that he's going to PSG on a two-year deal for a free, leaving Real Madrid. Of course, he's been there since the start of his career, really. I know he had a spell at Sevilla as well, which many people don't really know, but he's been a great leader for Real Madrid, of course, that three years where they just won the Champions League. It was brilliant in those four years, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think he was, in his generation, he's probably, if not the best centre-back that like has ever played during... His playing career, I think Carlos Poyol was just at the at the start of it, but you could probably say him. Um, but for PSG, I think it's a, a very good signing. I think since they'd lost Thiago Silva to uh, to Chelsea, I think they've been a bit shaky defensively. We saw it a few times in the Champions League this season, and obviously they didn't win the league this season, which for them is a, a big disappointment. But to get someone with the experience that that Ramos has, I think they'll push him. Uh, he'll push them very far, and hopefully they can do better in the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, I think they have to win the Champions League next year because if Mbappe doesn't go to uh, Pierre, if Mbappe goes to Real Madrid, which it looks like he could be doing, or any of the other club, because he looks like he's running out, running out his contract, then this is the time to win it next year. And especially if they've got Donnarumma in that, and we've seen this tournament, he's not letting a lot of goals really. I think it's been around two in the Euros. So is the next year's the time to win it, surely? Yeah, I mean, they've got a new manager in, in Pochettino. He hasn't had the, the best first season, but they've signed so many big players. They've spent so much money, and now all of their players are just in it together. Like, they've signed Donnarumma on a free, Ramos on a free, and they've still got Neymar. They've still got Mbappe for one more season, and then Di Maria's just coming to the end of his um, 
the end of his career probably. So if all of these players can just get their heads screwed on and play as a team really, then I think he has to be. That is the thing because you can, and I've seen it at United, you can make all the marquee signings, all the big names, but putting them into the team, that's the hardest bit. Do you reckon Pochettino can do it? Maybe. I think he did it at Spurs. He definitely did it at Southampton with squads that he shouldn't have really been in the position he was in. Um, so if he can get these planes together, then I think he could do very well. We'll go to a Frenchman now from the French League, and he's moving to the French League. In fact, Arsenal have confirmed uh, that Matteo Guendouzi has left to go on to Marseille on a loan deal. Um, another loan deal. D- does Arteta just not like him? I think we've seen in the past that he doesn't really like him. He's he spent a loan spell this season at Hertha Berlin. He did very, very well, I think. So to go to Marseille, it's a bit of a step up in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think he's a, a very bad player, but I think it all really spouted from um, the Mope incident when they when they played Brighton. Uh, since then, I don't think he's really played. And then obviously he sent him on loan to Hertha Berlin and then obviously again this season to um, Marseille. So I don't think he's a, a very bad player. I hope he does very well at Marseille, but I don't think with the relationship he does have with Arteta, he's going to succeed at at Arsenal. Yep. Now we'll go to Leeds United. And they made a shock, 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 shock transfer move with Barcelona's junior Firpo moving to Leeds for an unclosed fee. Nobody really knows it. But a great signing for Leeds, this, isn't it? I I said to you this week, he fits into Barcelona. Marcelo Bielsa side he just slots in straight away he's brilliant he can play in the 4-1-4-1 that formation he can play in the left back he can even play as a winger wing back he can play all over that left flank he's a great signer and he can fit well in the press like he does at Barcelona yeah I think we all knew that Alioski wasn't going to sign a new contract this season but we didn't really know who uh, Leeds were going to sign in his place and I think they've outdone themselves with his signing he's very fast he's a very good defender and I just hope he succeeds at Leeds and he seems like a Marcelo Bielsa type player Now before we go on to the next signing I just wanted to focus on Barcelona in fact because they've they've got a bit of a situation going on haven't they Alex could you report on what it is? So I think they've they can't make any signings at the moment because they've gone over the the wage limit in La Liga, which means they can't get the pie, can't get Wijnaldum, is it? Yeah. Uh, no, sorry, Eric Garcia. Um... Yeah, Garcia and, and Aguero. So they're in a bit of a sticky situation. Well, what what do you think about that? I mean, Barcelona they've hit hard with the pandemic, along with rivals Real. We we know that, but. To go the salary cap, to go over it, is the financial just no financial advisors at Barca or something? Yeah, I don't really know what they. Surely they should have seen they can only play, uh, pay players like a certain amount and just not paid players that much. I think they can't. Didn't wasn't the reports that no one really wanted to leave, um, so they couldn't yeah. really get the wages down, and no one wanted to take a pay cut either. So. I'm not sure what they want to do. Um, I don't know whether Messi signed a new contract. Yeah, I don't think he has. He's still so, free agent. Yeah. <laughs> so they've got all these things. And uh, Trincao, who's meant to be one of the best players uh, since a long time to come out of La Masia, he's gone on loan, I believe. Has he gone to Wolves? Yeah, Wolves, yeah. Well, he's gone to and Wolves. They, and they've sold Firpo as well, but 
still very far over the salary cap. Yeah, uh, 200 million they are, even with all these deals done. So it's quite a hefty fee to do. Um, I think another one was one of the players is trying to sue Barca as well because they've just released him and got rid of his contract. So he's taking them to court now. So they're in a sticky situation. Do you reckon they can get out of it? I think they're such a big club that they, they really have to if they get enough investment and stuff like that. But then again, like if you look at some teams, if they went over the salary cap and they weren't probably one of the biggest teams in the world, then I think they'd be in a, a bigger situation than Barcelona right now. Yep. Now we'll move to Patrick Vieira and he's made his first signing at Crystal Palace with the highly rated teenager Michael Olisay from Reading. Alex, do you know a great deal about this man? I actually do. Uh, I've watched him a lot of Reading um, this season. Seems like a, a very good young player. I think he's 19, isn't he? Um, and he's he's French as well. So I think Patrick Vieira has influenced that quite a bit. Um, probably one of the best players in the championship this season going forward. And probably unlucky um, not to get promoted with Reading this season. Um, but I can't help but think it's probably a, a short-term Elise replacement. Uh, not Elise, uh, Eze replacement. What position does he play for everyone who doesn't know and what can he bring to the table? A very creative, uh, skillful attacking midfielder. But I think I'm aware that he can also play out wide as well. Well, it'll be so interesting. Pretty much, a, pretty much Eze, isn't it? Yeah, he will, it will be interesting. I think he might have a bit more pace than Eze and Eze's fairly quick. So it'll be interesting to see how well he does from one teenager to another and Harvey Elliott signs a new contract with his boyhood club. Very, very highly rated. He did very, very well for Blackburn last season. Will he make a first-team appearance this season, do you reckon, Alex, with this new contract? Hopefully. I think uh, the more experience he gets, the better player he's going to get. Um, I think, as you said, with Blackburn this season, he's I think, has he got double figures in goals yeah, and assists? Yeah, both. So he's, he's definitely a very skillful player, but I think if Klopp, manages to play him uh, even more than he, he did the season before going to Blackburn, then uh, it'll do very well. Danny Ings has turned down a new four-year deal at Southampton. He's been linked with the likes of Everton, even a return to Burnley. Spurs have been in for him. Where's his head at, do you reckon, at the moment, Alex? He's 28. He's got a fairly, He's doing very, very well in his career. Where would you, where would you go if you were him? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think I'd want to go somewhere better than Southampton, seeing as he's probably their best player, even though he's been injured a lot of this season. He's still, I think he's back 14 goals, which is, is still impressive for a person that's only been fit for half the season. Um, do you think maybe Man City? I've heard, maybe, but... I've I heard go on. Um, Guardiola come out and say, they haven't really got the funds to, to buy a new striker. I know he was linked with them uh, a while back, but he could be a, a good short-term replacement for Aguero. Yes, could be. I mean, I don't know if Pep is really bothered about a striker, to be honest, because if he, play, mm. if he put, continues to play false nine with Kevin De Bruyne, he's not really got a lot to worry about. And all the wingers that he's playing on the wings can play in that central spot if they need to. Of course, they've got Jesus still as well. Sterling can do it. Bernardo Silva can do it. Mares can do it. Rory the lap. <laughs> yeah, uh, you might even use him, you never know, bring a bit of youth in. Mm. But all those players across that front three positions can play as a false nine. So 
I don't know about you, but why would you go out into the transfer market if you've just won the league in that way, sort of to the back end of the season? Yeah, I think I, I think the only way he'd go to Man City if it was for, on a free transfer at the end of his contract. Um, I do probably see him staying at Southampton this season, um, but he is getting to the last stages of his career and he... If he wants to to develop as a player and like have the end of his career as one of the best, then I think he does have to move. Yep, we'll have to wait and see what happens with Danny Ings and where he will go. Will it be Premier League or maybe abroad? You never know. Yeah. But I alluded to this man before. Patrick Vieira has signed a new three-year deal with Crystal Palace to take over them as the manager. How do you reckon? How well do you reckon this appointment will go at Palace, Alex? Of course, he's managed the likes of New York City in America, uh, a French team as well, I believe. He's, he's been around the block, that's for certain. Yeah, I think it's it's always very risky to um, get a manager like this. He hasn't really had that much experience in his managerial career, but definitely as a player, he has. Uh, I mean, he's won the league with Arsenal, um, so. I think he probably knows the Premier League, but if he can get his tactics on point at Crystal Palace, he has a lot of young, exciting players. So if he can get them all playing, all playing up to their potential, then he should be a very good appointment. Yes. Now we'll move on to Watford. And literally just about before we're going to go into the transfer news, Alex has said they've made three signings in quick succession. So we'll start off with the first one, arguably the biggest name on this list. Josh King, 29 years old, of course, plays for Norway as well as his country but he's played for Everton for you this season to the back end in a couple of games Alex what can Watford expect? Um, I mean if they play him well if they don't play him on the wing like we did if they play him either as a, a false nine or a striker then he'll be very good he's very quick very skillful uh, can put the ball in the back of the net when when he's on form um, but yeah all they need to do is, is play him in the right position also, a new signing, Peter Etebo, central midfielder, 25 years of age, of course, was in that Nigerian squad in the World Cup in 2018. He's gone on loan from Stoke uh, with an option to buy. Uh, that's what Watford have said. So would this do a great deal for him? Because Stoke, are, I mean, Watford are in the Prem now, so you expect it will do be something better than Stoke in the Championship. Yeah, I think it would be very good for his career. I'm not sure how much game time he'll get. I know Will Hughes and Chalabar in the midfield, they've been very, very good this season. So he might just be a rotational player, but maybe they're getting rid of Hughes, you never know. Yep. And then they've also made a striker signing as well as Josh King, Dapo Mabude, who is 19 years old, Scottish international. They've confirmed the signing of him, 19 years old, from Rangers. Do you know a great deal about him, Alex? No, no. can't be honest. But these little gems, you know, these little gems can do a lot. Like Cissé, Newcastle, that's just one for you. But this guy's a bit younger, so it might take him a bit of time. But yeah, it's great to see Watford investing in the youth. Now we'll go on to some kit reviews, starting off with the Merseyside Clubs, Everton first, and they've released their home kit. And Alex, I can only come to you first. I wasn't, like, when I first saw it, I was a bit shaky on it, but I'm, I'm starting to get used to it now. They posted a, a picture like with uh, all these um, like blue and like lighter blue on all the zigzag patterns. So I was a bit scared when they did that, but I think they've done well with shading it in a bit within the kit. So um, 
yeah, and the yellow's back. I've always liked a bit of yellow on the kit. So, where does the yellow come from? Because it's, of course, it's not really on the badge. Do you, do you know where um, it really comes from? I think in our old badge, like the one we had, like twenty ten or all of that. I think it had a, yellow, a bit of yellow on it, and we've kind of stuck a bit of yellow on our kit ever since. So I got you a bit of yellow here. So. Yeah, you have. Right. Yeah, I think it's a very, very nice kit. Um, I do like the element of the zigzag sort of on the... It's not really a zigzag, but... adds a bit of spice to it. Yeah, it does. Um, and I don't know, have you still got the Hummel, um, like, X... Uh, upward yeah, yeah, yeah. V, sorry, on the sides, yeah. I can't really see them in that picture, but yeah. But yeah, it yeah it looks like a very, very nice kit. Uh, but I still think last season's was better, I think. Mm. I think that was a nice and, and the away kit this season. Yeah, speaking of away kits, Liverpool have released their away kit. F- different, I mean, it's got a collar for first off, uh, creamy, so I've got the red and orange in there uh, and sort of the black end of the collar sleeves. What What do you think about the kit? I prefer it to the home kit. It's definitely not the best kit um, that they've really had. I, I like the colour, to be honest with you, but I think they could have done more with the trimmings. It's kind of black and red i would have liked them go for a bit more of a variance of colors but um it's a nice design and just a, a nice um I, I like to say modern kit yeah of course well it's sort of old-fashioned in a way with the color isn't yeah, it with the color yeah yeah of course chelsea had a color with that white kit um i think it was two years ago now uh that was frank lampard's first season um and yeah the white with the blue and red color that was very nice mm. um so yeah the nike awesome. followed it up here yeah, Max Alonso. Um, so Atletico Madrid have also released their kit this week. Looks like sort of a paint design. Somebody's just splashed a ton of paint on it. But it does look nice, to be fair. Yeah, I must admit, like I like kits that, like, not an outrageous design, but it's a, a nice design. And, yeah, it just fits very well with, with the kit. Obviously, they won the lead this season, so they wanted to go a bit out there, and they really have done. I think they could have incorporated maybe a bit of gold, I knew, Leicester did that when they'd won the league, uh, just to commemorate it a bit. But yeah, they've they've done very well here. Yeah, the trimmings as well. Uh, a red on the left uh, and on the right. Uh, oh, I thought it was a blue, but it's the background actually. So it's red on both arms. Sorry, my mistake. But uh, just inside the shirt, you can tell uh, the lines on the back. I want to see what that looks at the back of the shirt. I don't know if you can see it, but that'll be interesting to see what those little lines are at the back. Mm, yeah, uh, but the, I think the high Hyundai and the plus uh, 500, I think those really come and suit it very well, especially with the colours as well. Yeah, not a very nice, simple sponsor. You always like it when it's white as well. Yeah. Now, that is everything done. Euros, transfer news, general news, kit reviews. Thank you for listening on this podcast, and we'll come to you next Friday. But that's a bye from me. And me. Coming in. It's coming out.